Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 213th episode the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Dave Yeski. Dave is the co-founder of Yeski Bowie, an independent REA based in San Francisco that oversees $740 million of assets under management for more than 300 affluent clients. What's unique about Dave, though, is the way he has blended together academic financial planning research with the practice of financial planning, culminating in a policy-based financial planning approach that frames financial planning not in terms of the recommendations we make for specific client situations, but the policies we set with clients to help them confidently handle any number of future scenarios that might arise. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Dave applies his policy-based financial planning approach at Yeski Bowie, the monthly reports they generate for retired clients to help them see whether they're in their safe spending policy guidelines, the quarterly tax reports they create to coordinate with their clients as outside accountants, the money quotient questionnaires they use on an annual basis to be certain that they're covering all the bases with their clients, and how using a policy-based approach to financial planning can help reduce client stress during turbulent markets. We also talk about how Yeski Bowie structures its own approach to financial planning with clients, why the firm has chosen to take a team-based approach for all clients it serves, the reason Yeski Bowie chooses to charge a single consolidated assets under management fee, despite the fact that, in Dave's own words, 75% of what they do for clients is around the financial planning and not the investment management, and why after hearing of the impending death of the AUM model for nearly his entire 30-year career, Dave now thinks it's more important to be nimble and adapt to changes in financial planning service and business models over time, rather than just try to predict what the future may hold. And be certain to listen to the end where Dave shares why he has such a passion for academic research despite being a self-admitted late bloomer in his own journey through college. The reason that Dave got so involved in the Financial Planning Association and how volunteering back to the profession has advanced his own career, and how even financial planners who teach their clients about long-term compounding seem to underappreciate the way that compounding works in our own advisory businesses, as Dave reflects on how painfully slow and difficult it was for the first six years of his business but how dramatically the growth began to accelerate in the years that followed and has continued ever since. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Dave Yeski. Welcome, Dave Yeski, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm really excited for Today's podcast episode, because you know, we, I, I think in some ways you and I have lived some similar overlapping paths in not only living within the advisory business, but spending time in membership association world, kind of crossing over to publish some research in academia. Although uh, you have done this even further than I have, because you chaired the FPA national board at one point and uh, and have gone back and gotten your doctorate, of which I am terribly jealous and hope to do at some point as well. But I, you know, these to me, there's this interesting intersection of just academia and membership associations, giving back to your profession and, and building an advisory firm and working with clients that to me is sort of the, the 
the, the quintessential essence of what it means to talk about a financial planning profession, right? Like the big P profession. And, and I think in many ways, you really embody all of those different pieces. And, and so I just, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to kind of talk about, it's one thing to say that's another to get down to the real world of like, how does that actually all come together? You got your doctorate in teach, you are also active in membership associations, you, you are a, a, a partner and a founder of a very successful advisory firm, that is a lot of stuff. So, uh, you know, figuring out how all of that actually fits together in the real world as someone that's tried to juggle those balls, also just really excited to hear a lot about. But I, I think to get us started, like, I'd love to just hear your, like, your views and thoughts of how you think about weaving all of that together, like being an advisory firm owner and, and, and trying to be involved in research and being involved in membership associations. There's only so much time in the day. Like, how do you think about all of that coming together? Well, you know, I, for me, it's always been one whole. You know, I years ago with my former wife, I used to say my last wife, but Elisa tells me, no, I'm your last wife. With my former wife, I was in marriage counseling at one point, and she was honestly, she was very angry among, among various other things. She was very angry that she didn't feel like I was spending enough time with the business because of the fact that I was... I was spending so much time teaching and doing volunteer work with uh, with FPA. And and my response at the time was, you know what? The business is getting all that it's ever going to get from me. If it wasn't the teaching and the FPA, it would be something else. And so, you know, I, I guess I've always felt like I needed those various parts in my life. But they do fit together. You, you, I think you referenced that. They do fit together. You know, the thing is, is that you, first of all, you never understand anything better than when you're teaching it. And that means that if you if you understand it better because you're teaching it, it means you're also applying it better in practice. So those things are a natural mix. And the other thing about the teaching and the research is that you know is that I think we need to be an evidence-based profession and so there needs to be a continuous link between academia and 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 the world of practice. And Teaching is a great way to do that. Research is a great way to do that. But, but you know, I think practitioners should at least be good consumers of research-based literature. And as far as the, you know, the volunteer work with the, with the, the you know, with mostly with FPA, I've just felt drawn to it. I felt drawn to it because, you know, the FP, the, the financial planning world was my world and it, and it ultimately came to feel like my family. And, you know, what we do and I know that you know most of the listeners are financial planners, so I'm stating something they already know. What we do is hard. What we do is hard. We, you know, we carry our clients. We carry them around. Elisa likes to joke and say that we sleep with our clients because when we wake up at 3 a.m. and can't go back to sleep, it's invariably because we're thinking about a client issue. And so it's hard work to internalize your clients' needs and goals and dreams and aspirations and feel like you have a role in those and worry about them. And so being part of a larger community where you can, you can experience the fact that you're, you're not alone, you know, you're surrounded by, you, you are actually surrounded by people who are experiencing the same thing is tremendously important. And so that's where I see all three of them as fitting together and actually is necessary because I just think to be a good, to, to be satisfied and effective as a practitioner, you have to be deeply connected to your professional community, 
And I think to be to be really sharp, you have to have some connection to academia, whether you're taking some graduate courses or you're teaching some graduate courses. Anyway, that's those three pieces are, are for me, they're like one whole. Well, I, I think you make a, a powerful point. I don't know if I would quite put it the way that Elisa does, that we sleep with our clients, <laughs> although I love the Well, actually, she, the, said the that to, she said that to someone and they said, do you charge extra for that? <laughs> It's just part of the deep service that we provide and uh, focusing on our clients. You, there is to me something though, just really powerful around that, including like even a little bit of a of a dark side to it. You know, there's a there's a book that's been bouncing around on my reading list for a year or two now that I I, I will admit I've not gotten I've not gotten to yet, but keeps being recommended to me by Paul Bloom called Against Empathy. And, and the whole nature of the book at the end of the day is that we, we often talk about helping professions, uh, particularly around areas like doc, uh, doctors and medicine, although I think this applies very much in what we, what we do as advisors as well. These sort of caring professions that are focused on our clients where we put empathy on this pedestal, like you have to be more empathetic. It's how you create rapport and connect with your clients. And, and Bloom talks about like there is a dark side to empathy, which is if you actually feel their pain too much, their pain becomes your pain. That's kind of literally what makes it empathy, but it becomes a big cross to bear. It can burn you out, particularly when you have a lot of clients and they're going through a lot of stress. And you know, we, uh, we'll see what comes from some of the research on the pandemic here, but you know, Klontip put out a, a study that got a lot of buzz back in 2010, 2011, looking at the financial crisis that the overwhelming majority of advisors had PTSD-like symptoms from the amount of stress that their bodies were carrying because we internalized all of our clients' fears and, and, and challenges all at once when the market crashed. And of course, it hits every client at the same time when the market crashed, as it did in 2008. And, and kind of the case that he makes is that you actually have to be careful about being too close and too connected with your clients that way. And, and he kind of sets it up with what you actually want to get to is not empathy, but compassion, where you can you know, sort of express compassion for the challenges that someone is going through, but but not totally internalize them to yourself to the point that you you carry so much weight and burden of your clients' fears and worries that it that it burns you out directly as well. I think that's a huge risk. I actually have a close friend who's a you know a long-standing and very successful financial planner, whatever it was, eight or eight or nine or ten years ago. You know, post it was it was after the Great Recession, but he left the firm he was with and took a and took a I think about a nine or ten month uh, hiatus before joining another firm, and. Prior to leaving his first firm, he had been suffering a whole host of, of medical issues that he was trying to manage. And he was working with, you know, nutritionists and herbalists and acupuncturists and, and uh, chiropractors and all, uh, you, you name it. And during his hiatus, all of that disappeared. And he realized that that what had been causing it was the fact that he was carrying all of his clients around, you know, on his back. The weight of his clients was damaging his health, very much to the point that that uh, Brad Klontz, or was it Brad or Ted who did that study? Anyway, very, very much to the point that that Brad uncovered with with financial planners walking around with the PTSD uh, stuff. You know, I've had I've had financial planners say to me about the Great Recession, you know, it broke me. It just broke me. I haven't been the same since. Yeah. 
And and you know, we actually saw a version of this. We did actually research on advisors and personality characteristics of advisors a few years ago through one of our Kitsis research studies. We we kind of mapped it to what's known as the the big five personality traits, which is a very broadly vetted and research framework around sort of the, the core traits that define personality styles, extroversion versus introversion, conscientiousness, openness to experience, agreeableness, and and the last is sort of neuroticism versus emotional stability, right? Like how how often are you sort of anxious or impulsive uh, versus kind of being very emotionally stable? And one of the biggest defining characteristics that we actually found in that research, you know, despite the the conventional view around advisors or kind of this people-oriented extroverted profession where you're supposed to be out there meeting people and building your client face, client base, we found no no statistically significant difference of the extroversion of advisors versus the extroversion of the general population. But we found a monstrous difference in low neuroticism for advisors that, you know, in essence, the people who advise, who become advisors actually do seem to very disproportionately be from a group that are a little, a little more comfortable trying to be that emotional grounding point for their clients because you know, not not to put like judgments around neuroticism. It is, I know, a loaded term sometimes in society, but in Big Five context, it's not meant to be judgmental, just descriptive of of how we take on uh, emotions of others around us. That you, what what we found in our research is that those who take on lots of emotions of their clients don't seem to stick around as long in the business. I I, I would guess probably very directly because of these challenges around around burnout and that you get, you know, you got to be willing and ready to be the rock for your clients or this just gets hard when times get difficult. Oh gosh, it does. And you have, you have more formal evidence. Mine is only anecdotal, but I have witnessed many times over the years, people dropping out of the profession because they were not capable of not getting so drawn into their client's situation emotionally that, that it, it just became unbearable. So it's a, it's something, this is why, you know, this is why the, all this talk about uh, it's just as important to engage in self-care as care for your clients is actually not, it's not new age woohoo stuff. It's actually, and it's not, and it's not coddling yourself. It's just like, you know, you have to care for yourself mentally, physically, and psychologically, uh, or emotionally, I should say, just to be able to do, just to be able to, to carry the weight of, of your client responsibilities. So as you look at this, it sounds like a piece of areas like membership associations and, and being involved for, for FPA for you, it was kind of a, a, a portion of this emotional outlet, right? Like just, it, it does feel a little easier to talk about the stresses of dealing with clients with a lot of other fellow advisors who are dealing with the same stresses with their, with their clients, that that, that that kind of community connection was a big driver for you. Absolutely. It was absolutely, I mean, I, I started out as a solo practitioner and, and, you know, even my part-time secretary was not in the office much of the time. And so I'm bouncing off the four walls, trying to, you know, trying to figure this stuff out, trying to serve the few clients I had in the beginning. That was sort of what I think what drove me to, to, to found the San Francisco Society of the ICFP, which was, you know, a predecessor of, of FPA, because it helped me build a community. And out of that came some of my closest and longest standing friends within the profession. And it just kept expanding. And it kept expanding 
first of all, because I, f- I you know, I just find it interesting. I, I'm fascinated by the profession. I, you know, I, I think about it every waking minute in many ways. And so to be surrounded, it's like, it's why I like to go to FPA retreat or annual conference because it's a target rich environment. It's why I don't sleep much when I'm there because, you know, when I have all of these people who, who have the same experiences I have, I want to hang out with them. I want to bond with them. I want to reconnect. I want to talk about the challenges of the day. And so, yeah, I think that, I think that this, it's actually almost, it's very therapeutic to be deeply connected to your community and, and to be engaged with your community. Well, and I can't help but chuckle when you say like, you know, you, you get so energized at retreat, it's, it's hard for you to sleep when you're there. Cause I, I still remember the, the first time I ever went to a, an FPA retreat back in, in 2004 and, you know, like it was my first conference ever. Like I was super excited. I'm like, I'm going to be a good conference goer. So like I, I was, I was up for the 7am breakfast sessions and I went to every signal session diligently and I got involved in all the different activities all the way through. And, and I still remember probably, I guess the second or third morning of the, of the conference, like I've gotten up to go to the 7am breakfast session. So it's whatever, 640 early daybreak. And I'm walking across the uh, like the the campus facility that we were at to get there to to go to the breakfast session, and I passed you going the other direction because you were going back to your room to go to sleep, <laughs> you know, and take a, and take a nap, and then you were the speaker at the 10 a.m. session that I went to. So like I passed you, you took a nap for what could have mathematically been no more than three hours and twenty minutes, and then came back. And presented on a <laughs> on on the on the topic and the discussion of the day, and and I remember kind of going going through that, walking by that, and thinking like, well, okay, this is a different kind of conference than I understood. You know, it's funny. Greg Clark tells this story of being with me in the presidential suite at annual conference or retreat, probably annual conference, and. You know, it was one of those things where we were we were you know drinking wine and talking financial planning, and until like three in the morning. And I was the I was going to be like the opening speaker in the morning, or I was going to introduce the opening speaker or something. No, I guess I was going to be the opening speaker. And Greg said I was never going to get up for that opening session. But he said as the as the night grew longer and longer and longer, he thought I have got to get up for this train wreck. And he said, "Damn it, you were just fine." But I. You know, I, I so the other thing I'm going to say. You should have just seen it through and stayed up until your session and then gone to sleep. Well, we've, uh, yeah, we've pulled a few of those as well. But, you know, I've had people say to me, have you, you know, while I'm walking up to the stage as I'm walking by them in the aisle, you know, so do you know what you're going to say? I said, yeah, I'll figure it out when I get there. And, and they're like, how can you do that? And my response is, just speak from your heart. If you just speak from your heart, you don't need notes, right? I mean, and my heart has always been very filled with this profession. So both from the, the standpoint of gratitude, because this can be one of the most satisfying and, you know, remunerative activities possible, but also, also really satisfying in terms of feeling like you're making a difference in people's lives. And so... Again, this comes back to this comes back to the professional side, to the professional association side. Is that, you know, I have got hundreds of of dear friends and colleagues around the country and around the world who feel the same way. And so, if I can have a gathering where I can hug them and talk to them until three in the morning, I I have to do it. It charges my batteries. So the year I was president of of, of FPA, two thousand and three, I was actually 
out of the office. I, I looked at my calendar like in June, halfway through the year, and I'd been out of the office traveling on association business for more than half the time that so far that year. And that continued through the balance of the year. And yet my, my practice grew. My practice grew during that time when I was gone, you know, almost half the time. And I, th- and I thought about it later. Why did that happen? And I realized that all of that stuff I was doing was charging my batteries so that when I was in the office, when I was meeting with clients or prospective clients, I mean, it was kind of like the old ad where someone's hair is being blown back by a speaker, you know, I would get to the end of a conversation with a prospect and they would say, oh my God, you are clearly excited about what you do. I say, yes, it's important. I am excited. And guess what? It turns out that people like to work with people who are excited about what they do. So anything that charges your batteries has got to be good. I like that. Pe- people like to work with people who are, I would say, who are energized about what they do. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about the advisory firm itself. Like what it, what does the advisory business look like today? And then I want to go back and understand a little bit how it grew and evolved over the time. But but for starters, can you just tell us a little bit about the advisory firm as it exists today? Sure. So we are two offices, one in Vienna, Virginia, which is about nine nine miles outside DC. You know that very well since that, that's your hood. Yep. Uh, all about four miles up the street from us. Yep. There you go. And another office in San Francisco. We have a team of 15 right now, the 10 of whom are on the financial planning team and the other five are operations and support. We have a single service offering um, and it is comprehensive financial planning and asset management combined as a single a single service, single integrated service paid for by a single asset-based fee. And we really emphasize the financial planning part. You know, I think that we're really good at the investment part, I think we have a I think we have a real depth of expertise and we're very disciplined and all, you know, I, we could go into that for hours. But I always, you know, as I always say to clients, we or prospective clients, we nonetheless think of ourselves first and foremost as financial planners. You know, because financial planning is about the is about context and context matters. And so we I'm going to say we devote, you know, 25% of our time to the, the investment management part, 75% of our time to the financial planning. And so the best fit for us, the clients that who, who work with us and, and you know stay with us long-term are the ones who value the financial planning side, are the ones for whom we are their first call for almost anything that's going on in their life. And so and, uh, my partner is, is Elisa Bowie. We both had our own firms. And in, when we merged as of January 1 of 2008, we, so Elise and I, uh, you know, we met on the board, the national board back in the, back in the late, back in the, the basically the late nineties. And Elisa uh, was ultimately chair of FPA in, two, in 2000 and then rotated off the board. I was, you know, I stayed on the board, but we were part of a study group. We continued to, we continued to, uh, to meet and see each other. And we got to be really close friends. And then in 2002, you know, we neither of us were married at the time, and we were at a. Of course, we were at a financial planning conference. It was actually a Nasrudin meeting in in uh, Anchorage, Alaska. And, you know, and we looked at each other and said, "Are we really going to allow 2,419 miles to stand between us and something special?" And the answer was no. So we started dating coast to coast. Ultimately, got married in 2006, and then merged our firm in, in, as of 2008. And I've had people to say to me, well, of course you merged your firms, you were married. And I'm like, 
have you never been married before? That was like the last reason to do it. Well, I was going to say that. Yeah, that's a striking thing. And and I mean, there are literally models out there around this. You know, a, a lot of advisors know Norm Boone and Linda Lubitz, who who are are married and had practices on on opposite sides of the coast and kept their firm separate. Yeah, Lisa likes to say that they they you know they had the same commute that we had, but they were wimps. They didn't they didn't go so far as to merge their businesses. <laughs> oh, that's like gauntlet gauntlet is thrown. So. <laughs> How like how many clients or or what's the what's the asset base of of who you serve? Just so as we have context of like who are fifteen people supporting? I you know I the last time I looked was probably a month ago. I think we're about seven hundred and forty billion. Pardon, Billy. I wish it was billion. Seven hundred and forty million under under management. About three hundred clients. Okay, so 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 you know, kind of like napkin math. Your your average client is two two and a half million dollars under managers. Like you, you work with a a fairly affluent clientele. Like this is a we got to do a lot of stuff for these clients if we're charging an asset based fee on two plus million dollars. I would say, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. It's, I mean, it's a mix. The average is is around two million, but but you know that includes some people who are worth twenty million and and some who have been with us for a long time who are worth five hundred thousand. But you know we love them and care for them and just like everyone else. But you're right. More, I mean, the majority of our clients are larger, if you will, from in terms of financial resources. And and we and we do we do feel like we have to do a lot for them. Although we feel like to do a financial plan right, we have to do a lot anyway. But it's you know again. The clients who are the best fit for us are the ones who value the financial planning part of what we do. I mean, they can I don't want them to put no value on the investment on the investment side of what we do, but they have to also value the financial planning side. And those are the ones who stick and those are the ones who who I think thrive and the ones that, you know, become a permanent part of our family. So can you talk to us a little bit more of just what that what that means in in practice? Like what what do you do? What do you do for you know, multi-million dollar clients in this blended investment management and financial planning offering to keep the financial planning side so front and center for them? You know, of course, we begin that we you know every engagement with a very deep discovery process, and then you know followed by our initial planning assessment, evaluating all of their resources in light of what we learn about what matters, who and what matters to them, and we develop an initial plan. It's all all of our analyses is posted to a client private page online. That's the portal through which we work with our clients, and so we do all of our. And, and what's the what's the actual like portal of choice that you use for facilitating <laughs> it's that. it it's it's our own proprietary i i so, so i, I so would, you like you literally built your own your own client portal yes and and i will say i i have yet to hear anything that would contradict this but i think i created the first financial planning portal on the face of the earth back in uh, 1998 i think it was 97 or 98 I, you know i hand coded my first website i got bored on a sunday and figured i could teach myself some html and and it turned out it was pretty intuitive and so built my own website eventually in the late 90s you know we were getting into the dot com frenzy and i had clients who were like getting on the schwab institutional website you know 15 times a day looking at their looking at what the market was doing and this and the other and so my thought my, my first initial impulse was i want to get them the hell off the schwab site and so that's when i had the notion of building a, a 
a portal for each and every client to give them some place to go where they could look at information that's been formatted the way I think is meaningful. So that was the beginning. But what we rapidly realized is that it would it could be very effective for all of our financial planning work as well. Because, you know, when you're tra- when you're doing when you're printing out financial plans or draft financial plans, you know, you end up with some version control where it's like, who knows if we're all looking at the same document or the same the same information. But if the authoritative copy is always the one that's posted to the client private page, then we're always looking at the same thing. So you get version control. And it also means that clients can look at it whenever they want and see the most recent information. So we actually, so we do our, we do our initial financial planning. I know I got off on a bit of a tangent there, but, and we, and it's all posted on the client private page. We post tax information on a quarterly basis. We actually update the portfolio performance reports on a monthly basis. And some people in the past have said to me, oh my God, you want people thinking about their investments every month? And it's like, well, not necessarily, but people don't always, they don't check into their client private page every month. So whenever they do check in, I want the information to be current. And then on an annual basis, we do an annual update with every client and we update all the relevant financial planning analyses and we review it with them. And some of it's just housekeeping stuff. Some of it's just, you know, we have a we have a summary of all of their key insur- insurance information, a summary of all their beneficiary information, of their key estate documents, a, an estate flow chart, an annually updated tax analysis. And a lot of this stuff we go through is just like, let's revisit your beneficiaries. Let's revisit your successor trustees. Let's revisit. And, and most of the time, clients nod and say, that's fine. And sometimes they say, no, actually, I had a thought about that. I want to change the successor trustee or I want to change that beneficiary. So we are the kind of the keepers of the key information. And then we do other analysis as needed in between. You know, clients have always said to me or they've always asked me, well, how often will we meet? And my answer has always been, well, I don't have a maximum, but I do have a minimum. I want to meet no less than, than annually because it's, that's the minimum time frame to keep us all on the same page. Because we're thinking about this stuff every day, but the clients aren't. So it, the other thing is that, and this was my fantasy from beginning back in, you know, I started out in 1990. And in the early 90s, I hired a programmer to create a, CR, a custom CRM, which is a fool's errand. Norm Boone did the same thing, and he and he told me at the time it's a fool's errand. But you know, I hired a programmer to create a custom CRM because I had this fantasy of being able to like every time there was a change in the regulatory or economic environment, I could scan my clientele for key characteristics where there was either a threat or an opportunity that needed to be addressed proactively. That project didn't go well, but we currently use a, a, a highly modified version of Salesforce. And today we can do that. And so the financial planning team is constantly scanning the horizon and saying, oh, we've just had a new regulatory change, a tax change, a law change. We need to, we need to scan our clientele and see who fits the profile of someone who's going to be impacted by this. And then we need to proactively analyze if there's something to do and then we need to reach out to them and say, you know, we've analyzed this and we need to and we need to do the following in order to avoid the threat or take advantage of the opportunity. And we're trying to get better about doing the negative recommendation thing where we reach out and say, we analyzed this on your behalf and by the way, there's no action to be taken so that at least they know we've analyzed it. So it's a, it's a combination of having a a very systematic foundation where we know we're going to do this up front, we're going to do this on a monthly basis, this on a quarterly basis, this on an annual basis, but then also being prepared to be proactive based on 
changes in the environment that are going to differentially affect different clients. So I'm struck by that framework that you like you have things you focus on doing on a monthly basis, on a quarterly basis, on an annual basis. So like what what actually falls into monthly versus quarterly versus annually at this point? First of all, the uh, well, actually, we have some things we do every two weeks. The month on a monthly basis, we we update all of the clients' portfolio performance reports. But the thing is, it's not just portfolio performance; it also is a monthly update in their twelve-month rolling spending if they're spending clients, and that's a key number because in our safe spending system, we constantly want to want to compare that rolling twelve months to what their actual target spending is, annual target spending. So there's a financial planning dimension to that as well. So if, a, if we have a conversation with a client, we say, hey, you know, as of last month, your 12-month rolling spending is in excess of your safe spending target. Let's talk about what's going on here. And how do you actually track that, their 12-month rolling spending? Well, so we've, we use Portfolio Center as our portfolio accounting system. And one of the standard reports that we generate that's part of the monthly update is a 12-month is a summary of spending from the portfolio. And it's just a, it's just like shows every itemized you know expenditure from the portfolio or every every itemizes every withdrawal from the portfolio and then summarizes it for twelve months. So you're not necessarily diving into their uh, bank account, but you're just literally looking at what comes from the portfolio in the first place. Exactly. And you know what? From the from the standpoint of our safe spending system, we don't care what you spend it on. Just don't spend more than what we tell you you can spend. So we, we're dealing with that at a very macro level. On a quarterly basis, we we update the um, you know we update the realized capital gains, dividend income, all of that, and and we actually share that proactively with a lot of tax preparers. We create cli- client private pages for for the tax preparers with whom we share clients, and then we actually post the client's quarterly information there. Not every tax preparer does anything with it. You know, a lot of them just safe harbor and don't think about it. But there are others, and of course, this is more relevant when you get into the bigger clients. There are others who will look at it every quarter, and they'll re- and they'll and they'll update their estimates of you know what the estimated taxes should be for the balance of the year and so forth. And then on an annual basis, we go back and we update all of the rest of the financial planning stuff. So you know we're going to update we're going to update their net worth statement. We may update their retirement projections. We're going to we're definitely going to update the tax projections. We're going to we actually send out a couple of money quotient forms to clients every year. You know, we send out a financial satisfaction survey and a life transition survey. And it's like we know our clients really well and we communicate with them a lot. But for us, these are like instruments to just like catch anything we've missed, something that's going on in their life that they just didn't get around to mentioning to us that may have planning implications. For those who aren't familiar with money quotient and, and some of these questionnaires, can you just explain a little bit more what they what they are? I think you said financial financial satisfaction and life transition surveys. So the way money quotient has structured a lot of their instruments for use with clients is money quotient is very much about giving you tools to take a deep dive into the interior dimension with your clients, into the, you know, their 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 personal history with money, their motivations, their vision, you know, all of that discovery stuff. But it's also good on an ongoing basis. And the 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 way it's structured is they have some that are very simple. They're just check boxes. 
And that's where the life transition survey and the, and the financial satisfaction survey, those forms are just checkboxes. You know, in the life transition survey, it'll have something like, you know, expecting an inheritance or a child leaving the house or whatever. And it'll say happening now, soon, much later. The financial satisfaction survey will say, I'm satisfied with my estate plan or with whatever. And it'll say, you know, not satisfied, somewhat satisfied, very satisfied. And, and, and then they have other forms where, you know, it's, it's short answer and other forms where you just like go into really extended exploration of what, of what they're thinking or what their vision is. But we find that those two first forms, very simple for anyone to complete. They are just checkbox forms. But again, it's a, it's a kind of a, it's an instrument to just scoop up anything we didn't already know about that may have been, a, that we may have missed, or they may not have thought to, to mention to us. And, and then, you know, and these are things, as is almost everything in life that has financial planning, you know, implications that we address. And and so you send these out like before your annual meeting, after your annual meeting, like offset from your annual meeting, because you're gonna ask about these things in your annual meeting. Like when when do you when are you actually putting these out and trying to use them? We put them out before the annual meeting. So when we're scheduling the annual meeting, we'll send them updated version, we'll just send them fresh forms. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, we probably get them back only about half the time. So it's, uh, you know, they're, they're useful, but, and sometimes we only get them, if it's a couple, we only get them back from one spouse, not the other. But even that creates the basis of a conversation. And I guess at the end of the day, like, if there's something to talk about that's on their mind that your form cues up for them, they are more likely to fill it out and send it back. Which is perfect because that actually prepares you for the important conversations when they have an important conversation they want to have a conversation about. And I would assume at least by and large, the people who don't fill it out and respond is just because they basically didn't have much that they felt like they wanted to chime in on and share about, which just gives you context for what's probably coming in this meeting. Exactly. I mean, we were, I was in a meeting a couple of days ago with some clients. It was an annual update meeting. And uh, the wife had checked that she was uh, uh, not satisfied with her estate plan. And so I said, Pam, I see that, you know, you indicate you're not satisfied with your estate plan. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. You know, do you want to make changes to the, the beneficiaries? You know, what, what are you thinking? And she said, I'm not dissatisfied with it. I just don't understand it. And that created an opening for us to say, well, let's talk about it. Let's let's look at this our summary document. Let's look at the flow chart that we've created that lays out what's going to happen at each stage along the way. And she was really happy about that. So it's um you know, it it sort of it may not pick up what you think it's picking up. You know, it's it, she checked that she was dissatisfied, but it turned out to the only thing she was dissatisfied with is she didn't understand it. So uh, what a what a what a wonderful conversation to have and 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 the kind of thing that just doesn't always come up. I find particularly areas like I'm just not really clear on the the strategy or the thing. I, I think a lot of people, a lot of clients feel awkward about bringing that up. Like I know we've talked about this three times already, but I just need really need to hear it again. That is reality for some clients, but not everybody likes to bring that up. It's a little easier just to check a box of like, not not satisfied with current status of something and let you ask. Well, and that's the psychological brilliance of the different ways in which the different layers that, that Money Quotient has created is that you're absolutely right. There's a really low threshold for checking a box versus actually bringing it up in the middle of a meeting. But ch- by checking the box, it created an opening for us to 
clarify some stuff that she was unclear about, and she felt much better afterwards. And this, the thing is, is that we spend time. I mean, it's so funny. We we, we sometimes we do these these annual updates, or maybe an interim update. And we never we never get to the por- the portfolio reports because we spent half the time talking about their property and casualty insurance and talking about the some of the sublimits that were not a good ma- mix for them, and and the thing about it is that at the end of it, clients will say, well, nobody, including my property and casualty broker, ever talked to me about these things. I had no I didn't understand how my policy worked, and I didn't understand where the gaps were. So you know, there's so many ways in which we can add value. Even including about stuff that that you know the estate planning attorney didn't make it clear how their plan worked, but we did a flowchart and we can explain it. Their property and casualty agent didn't make it clear what their insurance coverages were and what it meant, but we can explain it to them, and so they value all of that stuff. Well, and and it strikes me as well. So on the one hand, like I feel like what you're talking about is also just a lot of a lot of work. I was going to say a lot of busy work, but that like that makes it. That diminishes in a way that I don't mean to diminish it, but like just literally, it's work that takes a lot of busyness to produce net worth statements and update retirement projections, update tax projections, and send out money question forms to get them back, and quarterly tax reports and, and monthly performance reports that are being posted up for each client's client portal. So I guess this is part of what tracks back to why at the end of the day you have three hundred clients and ten team members on the financial planning side. Like just that's a ratio. Like that's 30 clients per financial planning team member, which is a fairly low ratio compared to to some firms, but that's what lets you go deeper and that's what lets you serve $2 million clients and keep them on board. Well, and some of the members of, of our financial planning team are financial planning residents. And that's a whole other conversation, probably talking about our residency, pro- our in-residence program. But we always do our work with clients in teams. Uh, never fewer than two Sometimes three. You know, I was meeting, had a meeting yesterday with a $20 million client, and there are three of us on the team. And he likes the fact that it's a team. In fact, he says, Hey, team, uh, you know, what, you know, I've, what do you have to say about this? He likes the fact that it's a team. He, he you know, he, all, he has worked with Morgan Stanley in the past, and he often tells me, uh, You know, you're kind of expensive. And I'm like, We're like your private office. So, and we're a lot more enjoyable to work with than they are. And he said, Well, that's true. You are. But we give him what he wants. You know, he wants to be able to talk to us anytime day or night and get an answer to a question of interest. And he wants, you know, and we have no less than monthly meetings because he's got a lot going on in his life. And I mean, I say 20 million, that's 20 million that we're managing. There's a bunch of concentrated stock positions that you know we'll eventually manage, but we're still helping him manage the, the, the risks and the opportunities with those concentrated stock positions. So it just has a lot of moving parts. But you know, we charge a premium fee and and we I think we give premium service. But you're right. It a team I know that a team of 10 for 300 clients is on the high end, but at the end of the day, we still manage to be well compensated. So so it works out. As far as we're concerned, it works out. You know, we could probably make a lot more money if we if we pared it down to a bare bones offering and just allowed for more turnover, you know, but we prefer not to do it our way. So in that context, I I am curious, you know, I know you are well aware of all the industry debates and discussions out there around advisory fees, fee models, AUM fees versus planning fees, charging planning fees separately. So I'm I'm going to presume for a firm like yours that 
you know, to go as deep as you go on financial planning and charge an AUM fee and not a separate planning fee is a is a is a conscious choice. So I'm I'm just I'm very curious for your views on like why the AUM model, why not planning fees or separate planning fees or breaking them apart when you have this offering where as you've said it, like 75% of what we do is financial planning, but you are charging a single bundled AUM fee. Well, so uh, you know, I guess I'll say a couple of things about that. First of all, historically, back when I was starting out back in the in the nineties, I would do I did all kinds of things. You know, I would I would do I would do financial plans for fixed and hourly fees. I would manage manage assets for for an AUM fee. I would um, I was I was doing hourly consulting for you know expert witness stuff. I was doing a little bit of everything, and it was very scattered and it was not very satisfying for me. It was it it just wasn't working, and so I sat down and thought about you know which client relationships seemed to be the most successful and satisfying for the client and for me. And it was the ones where I had a continuous ongoing engagement with them, you know, because I would do a plan, I would do a freestanding plan and I'd, you know, and I'd give them all the instructions for how to implement it. And they'd go away and they'd come back in a year or two. And I'd say, did you do anything? They said, no. Uh, You know, implementation is just too important. So we finally decided that, you know, there's just going to be one integrated offering there's going to be one asset-based fee, which honestly is also really easy to administer. I mean, I'm going to be honest there. When you talk, want to talk about operational efficiencies, we, ch- we will only charge an asset-based fee. We will only, tr- we, we will only assess it against the assets that, are cus- that, we're, that we're directly managing that are custody to Schwab. Because administratively, we don't have to think about it. You put that stuff on autopilot. And so at least the, the, the billing and the fee collection and all of that is easy. But philosophically... First of all, their their portfolio fuels everything everything else in their life. Why shouldn't it fuel their financial planning advice? I know a, a number of colleagues who back just just before the Great Recession switched from asset based fees to to annual retainers, and oh my God, that worked out well for them. I'm not sure how well it worked for their clients, but I can remember during the Great Recession sitting in my office, sitting in my conference room with clients across the table more than once, and having a client look at me and go. You know, based on what's happened in the markets in our portfolio, your income must be way down. And I'd say, yeah, it is. And they go, good. And it wasn't because, and it wasn't because they had any animus towards me. It was because it made them feel like we were in the same boat. And so, you know, clients like the fact that, you know, you're, you've kind of got skin in the game. If, you know, if they're, if they're suffering, you're suffering. And it means you have to build a business that can, that can have fluctuating income. You know, our income fluctuated quite a bit in the Great Recession, and 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 at least in the first quarter of this year, it really fluctuated. The year has turned think, out uh, to be the year has turned out to be better than we thought. But if if Q one billing happened on March twenty first instead of March thirty first, it would have been a lot uh, a lot uglier. Oh yeah, that's true. Uh, but it's but so the point is is that. Here's the thing. I, I'm I'm not going to, you know, I mean, a lot of people have, 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 I've been listening, I won't name the names, but I've been listening to prognosticators for 30 years saying, you know, it's wrong to charge asset-based fees. You know, you're making clients think it's all about, it's, it's all about the asset management. And, and first of all, my response to that is, 
What is it you tell them you're doing for that fee? If you tell them you're doing financial planning for that asset-based fee, and then you actually do financial planning, then they'll think of it as a a financial planning fee. But that aside, I've heard people for 30 years say that the asset-based fee model is dead. And guess what? It hasn't died in the 30 years that its death has been predicted. And the reason it for that even shrunk. it's it's growing like the entire brokerage industry is moving into the fee-based model that's the most dominant trend of the past 20 years is the growth of the supposed to be dying AUM model and the reason for that I have I have my own theories but I think based on my personal experience that the reason for it is clients like that model clients like that model and the and here's the other thing that that you know my other take on it is you know, our firm is not the is not the Queen Mary. You know, we're not a giant cruise ship that can you know, we can turn on we're we can turn on a dime. If we woke up tomorrow morning and no client on the face of the earth was willing to pay an asset-based fee, we'd figure out another way to get compensated. But until that day arrives, it works for us. It seems to be it seems to work for our clients. And so See, I don't believe in that whole Wayne Gretzky thing. Oh, he's successful because he didn't go to the puck. He went to where the puck was going to be. You know, I think trying to predict the future when it comes to business models is as much a fool's errand as trying to predict the future of the stock market. You know, I think what we need to be instead is nimble and grounded and prepared and just, you know, sort of with our antenna out to what's going on in the moment and making real-time adjustments to it. I like that framing, like... You don't have to predict. You can just be really nimble. I I do. There is a piece to me, though, that really resonates around the discussion of, you know, if you're if you're doing an AUM fee, but you're focused on planning, the question really becomes like, what are you actually telling your clients you're doing for that fee? And and, and then what, what are you actually doing and following through on? You know, the the thing, the phenomenon that I've seen for a number of firms out there that uh, I'll sort of put in air quotes do financial planning as a part of their AUM fee is that you know if you if you just from the business end if you look at your AUM fees and think about your AUMs and portfolios as the driver of revenue you you know if you're not careful you'll start actually managing your business that way which means you focus on asset gathering activities, you focus on asset retention activities. Financial planning is no longer a value proposition to be invested in. It's a cost to be managed because you're not treating it as the central revenue driver of your firm. And and if you do that, and if you do that long enough, you will lose focus on planning. You will put less resources there. You will end up delivering less value there. You will probably communicate it less. And, and your clients will end up thinking of you in, in the in the investment box and the financial planning box. But to me, that, that's that's not necessarily a function of business model per se. It, it's a function of where you set the value proposition of your business and how you think about your your staff costs, your staff investments, and and what you're holding out and what you're trying to deliver to clients. You know, if, if you view your financial planning as the primary way that you drive AUM fees, you're going to put a lot into your planning. And if you view investment management as what you do to drive your your AUM fees, you're you're going to put a lot there instead. You know, I, I having just seen a lot of firms over the years. Like I, I've seen a lot of firms that unwittingly crept away from doing as much financial planning because the irony is, I think the, I think the AUM model distorted how they ran the business more than it distorted how clients thought of the value. Because as you said, like if you tell the clients this is what's valuable and this is what we do, and you actually deliver that and they value that, like. 
they value what they, you tell them to value and that you deliver on. Exactly. And the thing is, is financial planning relationship and financial planning relationships are sticky relationships. I don't think asset management relationships are at all sticky. I think you live and die by by your your latest returns. Whereas if, if it's a true financial planning relationship, I have clients who just by bad timing, you know, they have they have returns that look crappy sometimes for years on end, maybe in situations where they shouldn't look crappy, just because the timing was bad about when they showed up, when we got in the market, whatever, you know, whatever, however that went. And yet they are so engrossed in and happy with the financial planning dimension of our relationship that they don't even talk about it. And they and they don't, you know, it's just not, it's just not their metric. I don't know. I, I mean, it's. I, mean, I guess what I'm saying is, I think doing financial planning is the right thing to do. I think it does benefit people's lives. It makes them. It it, re, it reduces the anxiety in their life that uh, that attaches to money. And every human being has anxiety around money. That's a universal. And so we are among those practitioners. You know, there are psychotherapists and there are financial planners doing good financial planning, and both groups can help reduce anxiety around money. Although I think financial planners, if they're doing it right can do more than psychotherapists to reduce anxiety around money. But so that stuff matters. You know, so it's, it's not just about a business. I, I mentioned earlier that the financial planning relationship is a stickier one. So there is a business motive to do good, consistent, comprehensive financial planning and don't let down. And, but it's also because it's the right thing to do. It is the way to change people's lives and to change their relationship with money, reduce their anxiety, you know, just help them live happier lives. Now, I am wondering as well, you had mentioned as part of your your ongoing process and your ongoing monthly process is kind of capturing the withdrawals that have come out of the portfolio as a as a rolling spending report to make sure that they're they're on track and within the guidelines of your of your safe spending system. So what is the safe spending system? What is that? So it it is something that's evolved a little bit over the years, but at its it started a dozen years ago. It started with the research of Guyton and Klinger on on um, decision rules around safe withdrawal rates. You know, and I know you're familiar with all this stuff, but I don't know if all your listeners are. I, I mean, if I can just take two minutes. You know, back in the 90s, you got a lot of stuff coming out of, of you know, the Trinity study and Bill Bangin very famously, st- you know, started publishing in the Journal of Financial Planning work on safe, safe withdrawal rates. And a lot of the, a lot of the numbers that came out of that, and, and of course, what they were looking at or the question that Bill Bangin, for example, was answering initially was, how, given, for a given portfolio, how much can I start spending in year one of retirement such that I can increase it for inflation every year, never have to take a cut, and have some confidence that my money's going to last for 30 years. And the numbers he was coming up with were like three, I think the biggest number at the time in his first study was 3.6% or something like that. And and a number of- In an era where, like in the 90s, everyone was talking about like 7%, 8%, 9%. Like that was- that was safe because the markets had been doing double digits. Because the markets so have been doing well, right? Right. So he was he was actually a good a good sort of counter discussion. But what I found interesting uh, later in the in the two thousands, and, and this was actually in two thousand and six that they published, was that they were asking a, a slightly different question. And they, the question that that John Guyton and Bill Klinger were asking is, well, for a given portfolio, 
what's the what's the initial spending trajectory you can set yourself on assuming you're willing to make certain adjustments under well-defined circumstances along the way if you're willing to add a little bit of dynamism into it and have a high degree of confidence that the portfolio will last they actually studied 40 years not 30 years they developed it it, it was actually it was over the course of two re- two sort of uh, research initiatives and two papers that they published, but they eventually got to a system that had three decision rules. And these three decision rules were like guardrails, you know, formed like guardrails around the spending. And so, you know, one day on an airplane, because we, you know, clients are always asking about this stuff. And, I, and we were just like rerunning, for retired clients, we were just like rerunning money tree projections every year and saying, yeah, it still looks good, doesn't look good. And it was not very intuitive for clients. And it actually didn't seem to stop clients from overspending. It wasn't very obvious to them what was going on. And so we realized that a, that a, that a, a system like that one that distilled down you know, all, of the, all of that empirical data and all of those Monte Carlo simulations into three simple decision rules. And of course, the decision rules that which you know John Guyton now calls policies because it's a very good example of policy-based financial planning are very intuitive to people. And what we found interesting is that we would always run, we would always run when we're doing a Monte Carlo, when we're doing a, a you know money tree projection pre-retirement. You know, we'd we'd always look for a plan that had a seventy percent success rate Monte, with the Monte Carlo, and you know, and then we'd say to clients, look. We're not saying there's a 30% chance that your plan is going to fail. What we're saying is there's a 30% chance that you might have to make some adjustments along the way over the course of your retirement. Well, it, it, what was interesting was that was a little bit of an intuitive thing for us as a way to incorporate the client behavioral dimension, which, of course, a Monte Carlo doesn't. But it turned out that when, when we operationalized the, the uh, Guyton Klinger work, it matched up perfectly with that. It turns out that 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 the that the the safe spending system via the the Guyton and Klinger study actually answered the question perfectly of what you do in those 30% of the time. So one one day on an airplane flying coast to coast I said I need to operationalize this in a way we can use with clients. And so I built a spreadsheet and I built all the decision rules into the spreadsheet with all the inputs. I learned what the limits of nested if then statements are in Excel because I had to have, I literally had to, in one, in some cases, several cases, I had to have like 18 nested if then statements in order to simultaneously accommodate all the three decision rules against all the possible inputs. But I developed a spreadsheet where we could input the data that was necessary and then we could. And then we could just run it every year. We, you know, we'd enter in what was the la- what was the twelve month inflation? What was the last twelve month return? What's the current portfolio value? You enter those three pieces of data in the spreadsheet. Automatically runs the three decision rules, and it says, and it just tells you which of the decision rules have been triggered and what the consequences are for the next for the spending target for the next year. Now, the thing that I did to extend that is I felt like I had, and you and I have had a lot of conversations about this dimension. I felt like I had to incorporate market valuation levels into it. You know, where, where's what's the market valuation when you start? And so what I did was essentially took, you know, I took the results of the Monte Carlo work that that was embedded in the, the Guyton and Clinger study. And I said, you know, we can use the spending level that had a that had a 70% success rate if we're in a really low valuation point in the market. And if we're in a high valuation point in the market, we have to use the spending levels that had a 90% success rate. So we built we built a, a low, a media a low, a medium, and high valuation metric, and we used the 70, 80, 90% success rate 
metrics from the Guyton Klinger study, and then that modified our, our that became another input into the spreadsheet. I, I hope that made sense, but yeah. So you know, if you're if you're in a higher valuation environment that's at more risk, you you might aim for a ninety percent probability of success because you know adjustments could be more severe since markets are just sort of mathematically have more downside risk. If you're in a a lower valuation, lower risk environment, we can manage to a 70% probability of success. Yes, literally, it means you might make more adjustments because they're 30% odds instead of 10% odds, but they're probably more manageable adjustments because there's only so much drawdown. Because you're coming for, and you're coming from a low valuation in the market, which predicts higher subsequent returns. And of course, intuitively, what, what, you know, it, it also fits intuitively because if, you, if what you do is you input a high market valuation, then it spits out a lower initial spending rate. And if you put in a low market valuation, it spits out a higher initial spending rate. And, 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 oh, and Michael, you, again, I know you and I have had this conversation, but it answers a question. I think this may have been back in 2004, or at least maybe five or six, but, but, no, I think it might have been that 2004 annual retreat in Florida where I was up on stage pontificating about something and you raised this question about the the the, the paradox of the safe spending approach where you know one one person has a million dollars and starts out at 4% in in one year another person who also has a million dollars defers for a year and the markets go down 20% and their 4% is much lower wait a minute they just both got stuck on radically different trajectories and and I've actually run the simulations Just based on which day they came to ask you the question exactly yeah. but I've run the simulations and the and the and the Guyton and Klinger model as we've implemented it actually bridges that gap you know the ones who the ones who started out uh, the, the first ones to start out they you know they actually get a couple of they get at least one capital preservation rule cut or maybe several and the ones who started out with the lower the next year with the lower spending they actually get some prosperity rule increases and eventually the two converge on the same place right just the idea you know in essence like if if you're retiring at market highs you might take four percent off a million if you if you're retiring right after the market took a big drawdown you might only have eight hundred thousand in your portfolio even because the the balance portfolio took a big hit but you can take a five percent withdrawal rate off of the off of the 800 because your forward returns are probably better right after a giant market crash than they were if you had retired right before the market crash. The thing I say so, to clients all the time when they because they always call up during a market decline and they say, "So at what point do we sell out?" It's like, "No, you have to understand the farther down it goes, the higher the expected return. The farther down it goes, the less likely we are to sell out." And and so you've talked about a, a few times kind of these three rules that you use in practice. So can you just talk about like what are the three the three rules, the three triggers or changes that you use with clients? Sure. So the the first one and the one that, that, that typically gets triggered is the inflation rule. And that that says that that says that you get an, in, an increase. You know, we, we do this once a year. There's an anniversary and we apply these three rules once a year. So it's it's dynamism, but also stability. You know, people always know for the coming year what their spending target is. Anyway, so when on the anniversary, when you run the rules, the inflation rule says that the spending target's going to be increased by the by the trailing 12-month change in the CPI. Unless the portfolio had a negative return, in which case there's a freeze. But there's a further exception if the spending target as a percentage of the portfolio is lower than the initial spending target, then they still get an inflation increase. So that's the inflation rule. That's the so one. The, so the the in essence uh, essential idea of it is you know 
if your portfolio didn't make any money this year, you don't get a cost of living raise this year. Right. Unless because it's done well in prior years, your spending is st- as a percentage of the portfolio is still below its initial level, then you still have room to get an increase. Then the two others are, are mirror images of each other. And the, in many ways, the most important, I think, is the capital preservation rule. And what that says is if, if your portfolio has d- declined in value sufficiently that your spending target as a percentage of that smaller portfolio is 20% bigger than your initial spending target. So in other words, if if your initial spending target was 5% and the portfolio has gone from a million to 833,000, well, that 50,000 initial spending is no longer 5% of the portfolio. It's now 6% of the portfolio. 6% is 20% bigger than 5%. The capital preservation rule is triggered, and your and your spending target takes a ten percent cut. So for the next year, instead of a fifty thousand dollars spending target, it's forty five thousand. And of course, the mirror image of that is if the portfolio had grown to one point three million dollars, your fifty thousand dollars spending target is now four percent of the portfolio, and four percent is twenty percent smaller than 5%, the initial spending target. And that triggers the the prosperity rule and you get a 10% increase on top of any inflation adjustment you got. And what they found in their simulations was that over a 40-year span, that maintained 99% of purchasing power. But it also leads to other conversations with clients because I've had situations with clients where they struggled because they had created lifestyles in which most of their spending were fixed expenses. And we talk a lot with clients about, you know, make sure, let's talk about structuring your spending so that a big enough proportion of it is discretionary spending that you can afford to absorb a 10% cut anytime the capital preservation rule is triggered. So, you know, the alternative is they just start out with a lower spending target. So if you want a higher spending target, you have to also be willing to make adjustments down the road. But the thing I love about it is I had one client and this is, you know, this is a, $30 $30 million client from a very wealthy, well, and you know, it's a it's a large complex of clients. And and she said to me one time, she said, I've worked with financial advisors my whole life. Everyone's been able to tell me how to get money into my portfolio. No one's been ever been able to tell me how to get money out of my portfolio until you. And the thing is, these decision rules have explained appropriate, you know, appropriately are very intuitive for clients. And so they it, it, it keeps them grounded and it also makes them feel confident that they have a system that's going to keep them on a sustainable path. And and it effectively just boils down to, you know, we're going to keep your spending rate between four and six. Like we're going to put some guardrails in place. Markets are going to do what they do. Most of the time, markets are not going to move enough to move your rate out of the four to 6% range, in which case you can just chug along living your lifestyle. But if you're veering way off track, like these are our guardrails. And you know we've we've had capital preservation cuts over the last dozen years or more, however long we've implemented this. And I've never had a year in which the the capital preservation rule got triggered more than once. In other words, it's in theory it could be triggered on on multiple subsequent years, but it's never happened. Even through the Great Recession, it didn't happen. You know because the thing is the Great Recession, the drop in the markets was horrific, but they started to recover pretty rapidly, rapidly enough that you never got more than one capital preservation cut. And the same is true. Actually, I don't even think this year is... <laughs> I haven't seen any this year because we've recovered so rapidly from the the February-March drop. And just 
how do you like living in a world of portfolio center? Like how how are you tracking this and showing clients where they stand? I mean, I understand getting the the rolling dis, you know trailing twelve month distribution report out of portfolio center, but that doesn't necessarily give you a report where you can line this up relative to their their guardrails and where the inflation rule kicks in, where the preservation rule kicks in, where the prosperity rule kicks in. Like, how do you actually do this in practice? Like, do you have your is some template you've made and you drop portfolio center data into it? Did you figure out how to make some custom portfolio center report to show this? Like, how do you do it? Because you're doing it for a lot of clients. Well, we actually formatted we formatted my original spreadsheet into a into a format that that we use with clients. And the spreadsheet just literally lays out the key factors. I mean, the key factors that we input every year are what's the portfolio value? What's the what's the portfolio value? What's the twelve month return? What's the twelve month change in in the CPI? And of course, the the spending target carries over from the prior year. And when when we update those three inputs, the spreadsheet automatically runs the decision rules and says, "Oh, this one's been triggered." And now and then it shows what the new spending target is, which most years is just a spending target that's been increased by inflation, but it could be one that's been increased or decreased by the capital preservation or or prosperity rule. But then we have a further section at the bottom. This is where I this is where this is proven to be so much more powerful than just rerunning money, you know, rerunning money tree projections every year for someone who's already retired. There's a section at the bottom that says here was your prior decision, here was your prior spending target, here was your actual 12 month spending. And if the actual 12 month spending was equal to or less than the, their target, we literally have a, a graphical image next to it that's like a thumbs up. If the if the 12 month spending was in excess of the the spending prior spending target, we actually have a like a big red circle slash that that we put there. And so it's like the you have two numbers you have to compare. And we can compare the mid-year, which is why our monthly reports are structured the way they are. You know, if a client meets with us mid-year, we have a conversation mid anytime during the year between times that they're that these rules are being applied. We can always we always update the spreadsheet to show okay now what's the twelve month as of now, what's the twelve month as of you know the end of November and oh by the way that's higher or lower than than what your spending target is, so it's just a it's a very simple people they can understand the the, the decision rules the policies. They have a very clear format that just shows you, here's what you spent the last 12 months. Here's what your target was. It was higher or lower. It was good or bad. We, maybe we need to have a conversation or maybe, you know, yay you. Maybe it's all good. So I can certainly appreciate your kind of passion around the the research and the academic side of this and and sort of taking academic research and putting it in practice. I know there's a, there was a label that was bouncing around for a while of, of, Calling people pracademics, which are sort of that that practitioner academic intersection, but but I know like you you took this a step further because you you actually decided to go back to school for a doctorate. So can you talk to us for a little bit about just like what what leads you at this sort of stage of career in business to say like now I'd like to go get a doctorate for while I'm doing my financial planning work. So you know, I was I was kind of a late bloomer. You know, I I I bounced around about four different institutions of higher learning before I managed to cobble together a bachelor's degree in my late twenties, 
And then at 31, I started my financial planning practice and immediately rolled into a master's degree in economics at the University of San Francisco. And I found it to be a very powerful experience to be studying economics in the evening for four hours every week, and then applying it with my clients on a daily basis. You know, I, would, I remember having a conversation with a set of clients and sort of mentioning the Markowitz mean variance concept, you know, the whole idea of an efficient portfolio. And one, the husband was an engineer and he said, what is that formula? Well, you know what? I, I was able to sit there and write out the formula for him and tell him how each element worked, which, which was exactly the right thing at the time. But more importantly, it gave me confidence in what I was doing with clients. I mean, I, I read Fama, Fama and French's seminal 1992 paper in 1992 in my graduate program, and, I, was, and I, was, I, was, I found it very compelling. And it actually influenced how I was building portfolios. So when the DFA folks showed up in my office in, in 1995 and wanted to talk to me about the Fama French model, I said, I can tell you more about it than you understand. And yes, I believe you guys are implementing it well. Let's talk. So I found that that, that kind of two-legged gate of, of of taking that sort of a deep dive into into the technical topics and then and then applying it on a daily basis with your clients was was very powerful for me. And so when I so I completed my master's degree, I was teaching in the graduate program, uh, the graduate financial planning program at Golden Gate University, and I got to know the full-time faculty who were running the doctoral program there, and I thought, you know, I, I seem to do well <laughs> having an academic element in my life even beyond the teaching. And so that's when I joined the program. But what was interesting is when I started out, and you know, coming off of a master's degree in economics, which was almost all, you know, basic economic theory, and it was econometrics, and it was it was market theory and portfolio theory, and it was, you know, very sort of investment focused in many ways. I so I started out in the doctoral program with a concentration with a focus on finance, and I was assuming I would do some some study on market microstructure or something like that. But what happened is my program was kind of extended because I got involved in the leadership of FPA and I, I couldn't really be as focused. But what happened is as, as my involvement with FPA deepened and as I had more conversations with Guy Cumby, who was actually kind of the one of the inspirations of, of my ultimate research, I realized that I wanted to do research in the area of financial planning. And my, and my inspiration, as I just said, was Guy Cumby. Guy Cumby back in... I don't know, 2003, 2004, he had just rolled off the, the FPA board as chair. He was, he was speaking around the country and saying, you know, we have a gaping hole in our body of knowledge around planning. And, I, and, and you know, if you, especially in those days, if you looked at, if you went to any conference, everything was about the silos. There'd be a presentation on tax. There'd be a presentation on estate planning. There'd be a presentation on investments. Nobody thought of planning as something to focus on itself. And so I thought, I, I'm going to figure out this mo some kind of a model around that. And I fortunately, I was lucky the the gentleman who eventually became the the dean of the business school. He's since retired. Ultimately, was my was the chair of my dissertation committee, and he was someone who all of his prior work had been done in the field of strategy. You know, he'd been up at the University of Washington. He did his dissertation there in, in, the, in strategy. And so I spent a year or two working closely with him. And he, he sent me back through the, the literature of the strategy literature on the business side. And of course, strategy, 
corporate policy. There are a lot of different names for it, but it's kind of the same. It's like financial planning. It's like, how do you best allocate scarce resources, you know, with, with certain goals in mind given or, you know, with, and with the organizational constraints and the strategic question in, in the corporate side could be easily recon, reconceptualized on the, on the family side. And so I spent a year or two sort of combing through that literature, reading hundreds and hundreds of papers and writing, writing summaries of them. And I, and I, I distilled out of that a model of strategy making that I felt could be applied to the, to the financial planner client relationship. And, and what was interesting was that the policy base, and I'm, Elise and I had already conceptualized and written and spoken a lot about policy based financial planning. It turned out that the policy based approach as a strategic posture was actually the most powerful in terms of fostering client trust and relationship commitment. So that was kind of gratifying that those two pieces came together. But anyway, that I'm, I'm doing what I'm typical of doing, giving the long answer to the short question, or maybe that was never a short question. I don't know. But so anyway, so it, it just, it all, that was another piece where it all came together for me. It all came together in, in my, my, passion about financial planning and my work with clients and wanting to figure out how to make it better sort of then permeated my, my doctoral research. And I ended up you know, publishing a, a, a version of my dissertation in the Journal of Financial Planning called Finding the Planning in Financial Planning and so forth. But so, so then help us understand like what, if this sort of formulated up to a world of policy-based financial planning, can you just Explain further for everyone, like what what is what is policy based financial planning? Sure. So policy based financial planning is well. Now I have to give a little more background. So back in the back in the in the early two thousands, clients were were traumatized by the dot com meltdown, the nine eleven, the deep recession that, that followed that that didn't end until the beginning of two thousand and three, and. You know what I was finding, what I think a lot of financial planners were finding, is that clients were coming back to us, and and they were freaked out that their financial plans had just blown up. And so you'd you'd gin up the machine, you'd re-enter all the data, you'd rerun the projections, you'd say, look, it hasn't really put you much off course, or maybe it hasn't put you off course at all. But it was very effortful, and 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 what happened also is because it relieved their stress. They would come back for their annual update like three times a year, which was really not efficient. And so Elisa and I were having long distance conversations at that time. You know, we we were dating, but I was not traveling as much. So so we were having long conversations every night. And because it's most of what we talk about is financial planning, we were talking about this idea of policies. And the thing is, is that is that um policies had been mentioned by Hallman and Rosenblum back in the 70s in one paragraph in a, in a financial planning textbook they wrote. And it was actually one that was used by the College for Financial Planning in the 80s. And I went back and looked at my copy from 1988, and I had actually highlighted this paragraph that was about this notion of policies. But they mentioned the notion but never developed it. And so we thought, well, maybe this is, this is a, a useful construct. Take all of we all everything we know about what matters to clients, their values, their vision for their their goals, and combine it with financial planning best practices, and distill it down to these decision rules that can guide decisions under changing external circumstances. And so you can have a policy. You, you certainly you can have policies like the the safe spending policies that clients find to be very intuitive and very comforting and very simple to understand because it's a dis, it's a distillation of a lot of stuff. It, you know, embedded in those policies, 
But the policies themselves and the way we present them is very simple and intuitive for clients and it keeps them grounded. But you can also have policy risk management policies about how they're going to make decisions about uh, insuring or not insuring risks. You can have legacy policies about, you know, uh, the charitable cause or legacy or or charitable giving policies. You know, I always like to joke that the the first the first time you write a check to a charity, it's the first of two gifts. The second one being when they sell your name to a, a mailing list. You know, people who give money tend to find that they increasingly are called upon to give money by an ever-widening circle. And it could, and in my experience, it, it could become very stressful for clients. And so if we develop simple decision rules, policies around what matters to them, what they want to support, and how they want to support it then those policies make it very easy for them to, to, to field these requests that are coming in. And it makes it very, it relieves the stress of that. So it's a way of taking every, and of course, every financial plan has policies implicit in it. But what, you know, our argument is go the next step and actually take those implicit policies and distill them down and make them explicit and then allow them to be a touchstone or a guide to clients to keep them grounded without having to rerun the financial plan every time they come, get worried or every time something new comes up. And we find it works pretty well. Yeah, it strikes me now just like this discussion puts the safe spending framework that you talked about in much more context that, right, it, it's not just, it's not literally about sort of the rules and where the guardrails are per se, although we have this research from Gutton and Klinger that says, you know, four and 6% around 5% is a good place to put guardrails. So off we go. The, the point is, is, is that that is a, a policy, right? Like it's not, it's not necessarily what you're, what they're going to be able to spend per se, because I don't know how the future is going to turn out. So I don't know which guardrails you're going to whack into or how many or in what sequence. What I do know is whatever it is that happens in the future, I know how we're going to handle it. Because we have a policy, like if things get bad, you'll make this trim to get on track. If things go well, you make that boost because you're ahead. So I don't know which one's going to happen, but I know we have a framework to deal with whatever it is that's going to happen. And so in the most sort of literal sense, like I am beginning to reduce the uncertainty. I can't take it to zero because I don't know which guardrails are going to be, but I can these are sort of very literally have a plan. If this happens, you'll do that. And if this other thing happens, you'll do that other strategy instead. Now let's go along together and see which one occurs. We don't have to make a decision. We don't, and we don't have to, we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time we, we, you know, we've already agreed to these, to these policies and we know what the guardrails look like. And as you say, whichever one we bump into, we know it's going to happen. We're not being surprised. Or for that matter, if, if, if someone, you know, if, if someone is being asked for money by a, by a charitable cause, they can say, look, you know, here's here are my policies. I support I support pre-K pre-K enrichment programs because research has shown that it has a huge impact on subsequent success. So, so that's my first policy. Let's let's examine what your cause is. Oh, you know what? You you're doing good work, but it doesn't fit that it doesn't fit my focus. Or you're doing good work and it does fit my focus. Well, now there's a second policy that's the second element of that policy. And that is, and I give up to 10% of my then safe spending target to the causes that I believe in. Oh, I've already spent 10% of my current safe spending target. See me next year. Or no, I haven't. Let's talk some more. And so it's, it's so the, the policies be, can also be kind of mated together. And the thing about policies is 
you know, they're about, they're about things that change. You know, if the policy always gives the same answer, it's, it's not a policy, it's a goal. You know, the policy has to change when external circumstances change. You know, the, the characteristics of a good policy are it's broad enough to encompass any changing circumstances, but clear enough, but, but it, always de- it always delivers a clear answer. It has to satisfy that kind of dual characteristic, but it has, but it has to be about things that change. So, for example, again, the, the in the in the charitable giving policy, you know, the second part of that policy is ten percent of my then safe spending target. Well, that number changes every year, but it doesn't matter because I can always figure out what ten percent of that is. And I guess the one, like the one unfortunate asterisk to all of this is like, and you can't do any of this in planning software, right? Like, I, I mean, I. I can't put in my planning software. Well, I mean, even like the framework that you have, like I can show the client that the client has a 70% probability of success and all the dynamics. But as you noted, like if you do the, the spending rules, your probability is going to go from 70 to 99%. Like I, you basically won't run out of money. You might have to cut several times because you've got a capital preservation rule that necessitates cuts if times are bad. But like you don't run out. Your spending just ends out drifting down with the policy until it gets to a sustainable place. So like, it's not even really about probability of success anymore because it'll always go back to nearly a hundred percent if you do enough cuts. But but I can't show I can't show in my planning software if the market drops by thirty percent, my client will cut their spending. But if the market doesn't drop by thirty percent, my client won't cut their spending. Well, but what the show what the what the planning software does do well, and this is where because you know we don't we don't really. We want to incorporate variability. We want to incorporate the you know the 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 variability of the key of the key inputs into our pre-retirement projections. So if we're talking to someone who's forty five years old, we're, we're going to do some money tree projections, retirement projections, and and we're going to run the Monte Carlo. The key, what we do with the software is we're always running the Monte Carlo to seventy percent because we found that that the safe spending system actually answers the question of what you do in the 30% of the time that you're off target. So they they sort of they fit together except that we used to do the Monte, we used to do the the money tree post retirement as a as a as a validity check and now we only do a pre-retirement and post retirement we're using the safe spending system but all the way along if someone was on a path pre-retirement where where they they were on a path where we were getting 70% Monte Carlo success rates, we know that when they hit retirement, that's going to match perfectly with the safe spending system. Although there's a there's another layer, and I've done a bunch of stuff on this and even presented on it. In fact, J- John and I did some joint presentations. The particular mix of pre- and post-tax assets, it does have an impact. If it's all post-tax assets, then it mat- it mates up perfectly with the 70%. If it's all post if it's all pre-tax assets, it's not a perfect match for a lot of reasons. I mean, it it, it will work, but the problem is it, it, it'll put someone on a sustainable spending trajectory, but their after-tax spending will decline over time with RMDs and the taxation that goes along with it. So so as you look overall at this journey of just having been doing this now, as you noted, for nearly 30 years and and growing to this 740 million AUM firm with with 300 clients. What's what surprised you the most about building your advisory business? At the most macro level, two things surprised me. One thing, the, the first thing that surprised me was how long it took to get off the ground in the beginning. 
And the second thing that surprised me was how fast it grew once I hit critical mass. You know, it's it's a very interesting function, man. That 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 line was flat for like the first five or six years that I was that I was trying to get off the ground. You know, but then you kind of get seven, eight, nine years in, and suddenly it takes off. There's a bootstrapping that if you're starting your own practice, there's a bootstrapping operation where where you've got to reach critical mass before it'll take off. And, and at least in my experience, and maybe I'm just not very efficient, it took a lot longer than I expected to hit critical mass. It's you know as I as I say occasionally on on this podcast and and elsewhere, like the first few years are really pretty sucky for everyone, and and like it's years, it's years that it's that it's really really slow and really hard, but the advisory business is a compounding business where like knowledge compounds, relationships compound, just actual business resources compound. So, you know, we, it's really awful in the early years, but compounding is an amazing thing and it works in advisory businesses like most other stuff. It really does. It does. And and that's, that's something for people to, to, to think about in terms of the upfront investment may be in time and money maybe a lot more than you'd hope but it will pay off if you've got the if you've got the spleen and the, you know if you've got the patience and the and the capital to stick it out in the beginning it it will pay out it is like a compounding function you know that line is state seems to be saying pretty flat for a while and then it goes vertical so so what was the low point for you in this career journey of building a, an advisory business you know the low point for me came in the late in the in the late 90s when i was starting to ramp up i was starting to you know i was starting to get a lot more referrals and more clients coming in and i i didn't have another financial planner working for me i had a part-time office administrator and i was basically doing everything myself and my conference table would fill up with schwab forms and and client data you know for a financial plan and i got to the point where I'm pretty effective when it comes to talking to a prospective client and getting them excited about working with me. And I, so I would have good conversations with prospects and they, and then we get to the end of the meeting, they say, man, you're hired. I really want to work with you. And they'd leave the office and I would immediately get depressed because it's like, oh, that's going to be one more stack of data that's going to sit untouched on my conference table or one more stack of Schwab forms or something. And so that was a real low point. That was a real low point. And I finally, it finally drove me to hire an assistant, uh, an assistant financial planner. You know, there's a, there's a, I've heard other people say you should kind of hire ahead of what you think your, your need is. That was an example where I at least could have avoided some of that low point if I'd been, if I'd had a little bit, if I'd pulled the trigger sooner. Because the person I hired was someone honestly who didn't work out long-term. But one of the things she did is she just helped me get a lot more systematized so that after she did leave, you know, we just were a lot more systematized. I had someone else doing a lot more of the, the grunt work. And it also helped me get to the point where I realized I need, and we had this conversation earlier, I need to clarify my service offering. I, mean, I need to get down to a simplified service offering where it's one thing. It's, it's, an, it's asset management and financial planning as one integrated service. There's one fee that pays for it all. And if you want something else, that doesn't make you a bad person. It just means that you and I are not a fit. I will refer you to a colleague who does it the way you want to do it. And that was how I, I came out of that hole. And it was a pretty dark hole for a while. Well, I think it's it's a powerful 
there's a powerful realization moment there. Like if you're if you're ever at a point in your business where you get a new client and your first response is, I have all this stuff I have to do for them now, you are probably behind the hiring curve. Like that, that's that's your that's your signal. That's your that's your moment, right? New client and growth, if you're trying to grow, should be a positive celebrated thing because hey, we can totally do this and we've got the team to do it. If if you're getting the growth and that makes you go, oh, I got to do all this stuff for them, you've probably crossed that point. What's interesting, and again, this might be me just being dense. I, I mentioned Norm Boone a, a lot because he got he got into financial planning about five years before I did. And we got to be friends through, you know, starting up the ICFP in San Francisco. And and he just gave me a lot of advice. Norm is Norm is good at giving advice. And I have to say, with 2020 hindsight, all of his advice was excellent, but I didn't take any of it. I had to make all my own mistakes. And so this is one where I could, you know, maybe I was just being slow and stubborn, but you know, I didn't see it. I didn't see it until I was deep into that hole. And so it's great that, you know, it's great that you do these podcasts. You know, if someone could just prime themselves, if they're just starting out, if they just prime themselves, man, be prepared. If you if you cross that threshold that you just described, Michael, if you cross that threshold, you are behind the hiring curve and you need to act now. So what advice would you give to younger or I'll even just say newer advisors, because many come in at career changers in many stages. What advice would you give to newer advisors? that are coming into the profession today trying to build their financial planning careers. So, uh, and this won't be surprising based on the big, you know what we talked about at the beginning. I think that one of the things you need to do is you need to from day 1 get embedded in your professional community. It will make you better, it will it will be that it will be that stress reliever. It will it will just make you feel better about what you're doing, but it will make you better as well. So you know, NAFA doesn't have chapters; they have study groups. But get into a NAFA study group. Get a, you know, join FPA. Go to those monthly chapter meetings. Go to the go to the the regional events. Do you know? Just get engaged. Get on a committee. Get you know, do something to be engaged in the larger professional community because it will it will have so many positive ramifications and do it for the right reason do it because you want to be part of the community i mean i've had people over the years who've come up to me and said you know you seem to have been a really active volunteer dave and and your practice seems to be very successful i'd like to be successful should i also volunteer and it's like yes and no if you volunteer because you think it's going to be some kind of a transactional thing where, oh, I'm going to do some volunteer work and my practice is going to grow, it's like, no. You have to do it for the love of the work. And yeah, you know, there'll be some externalities. You'll, 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 you'll probably be more successful, but not because it was a transactional thing. There's no one-to-one thing. But the one thing I do know is, you know, I've now been doing this for over 30 years and I've, you know, had the opportunity to meet a lot of practitioners at various stages of their, of their career. And the thing that has been universally true is the most successful practitioners I've ever met are the ones who are deeply involved in their professional community. So do it for the love of it, do it because it's the right thing to do, but you know, it'll also make you better. Yeah. I mean, I can also give a shout out for that, that just that was certainly pivotal for for my career. You know, I, I spent the first few years just kind of bouncing around trying to find the the job and the path and, and kind of where the heck I was supposed to land in the 
in the financial services world, I didn't find FPA until I was about four years in into my career. But uh, like without a doubt, that was the the changing and turning point for trajectory of my career. Like just stuff I learned, people I met, opportunities to be in leadership. That was very foundational for being in leadership roles later. There was just so much that that came out of being active, which for me was was FPA. That was what was around at the time. I I didn't know as much about the NAPFA world then. And it was FPA local chapter and leadership and being involved in national and committees with the national organization and going to the conferences and uh you know still like a lot of the things that I do today originated with relationships or conversations that happened like literally 15 years ago when I was first getting involved in in FPA and sometimes it takes that long for them to germinate but like cool things happened and I don't track any of it to my pre FPA days I I love hearing that and it doesn't surprise me at all I was listening to a great speech by Jim Collins the other day. Jim Collins, who wrote From Good to Great, and he was and he was basically laid out ten things that young people should do, and one of those ten things was form your personal advisory board. Form your personal advisory board, and and the way as he described it, some of those people might not even be people you you know, but I think that's one of the things that that being you know like getting deeply involved in FPA does is it gives you a, a personal advisory board of people who know what you're going through and are different stages of career and can give you really relevant advice or maybe maybe just the the hug or the pat on the back you need at that moment. But so so what comes next for you, Dave? You seem to always kind of you're you always seem to be moving in some some new direction or trying a new thing. What comes next for you? Boy, that's a good question. In terms of volunteer work, I'm the Foundation for Financial Planning Board of Trustees. But I, although I've been pretty focused on the foundation for a while, but I've only recently been on their board, and um, I've got a growing amount of focus there. And for those who aren't familiar, can you just ex- explain what the Foundation for Financial Planning is? So the Foundation for Financial Planning is the only nonprofit foundation solely devoted to facilitating the delivery of pro bono financial planning advice to those in need. And the foundation, you know, has close relationships with all the major elements of the financial planning profession, including FPA, CFP board, NAPFA. And in its, you know, I, I believe deeply that, first of all, it's a hallmark of any true profession. And it's my belief or at the very least, my aspiration that F, that, that financial planning be a, be a, ultimately be a true profession. It's the hallmark of any true profession to uh, give back, and it's in recognition of the important role in society and the power that that a profession practices. It's obviously deeply embedded into the the legal profession, and I think it needs to be deeply embedded in the financial planning profession. And it is, you know, I mean, every FPA chapter has a pro bono director, and 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 they have a, you know an ongoing focus on those things. But the foundation exists to facilitate those initiatives. And it's, uh, you know, it, it, everything from, you know, it was helping, not, it was putting financial planners together with 9-11 survivors back in the early 2000s to more recently, there was a pro bono for cancer initiative that has, that has put financial planners together with families that are suffering a, the, the financial toxicity of a, of a severe cancer diagnosis to more, to this year, the foundation jumped into action early in the year and created a COVID-19 f- a financial resilience 
fund that has been used to prop up organizations that that were that were that lost funding but we're trying to but we're in a position to help those in society who are particularly suffering from the impact of the pandemic yeah so I'd encourage everyone to learn more about the foundation and support the foundation financially if you can so that's one thing I'm, I'm finding that I'm more an ever-growing amount of my focus is now going to the foundation. Like I said it's been there for a long time, but it's but it's uh, it's growing. And look, you know, I'm I'm working on, I'm I'm continuing to work on the financial planning program at Golden Gate University. You know, that's kind of an ongoing project, and especially I, I'm going to say especially on the advanced financial planning side, the Master of Science in Advanced Financial Planning for those who've already passed the CFP exam. You know, we have so, so kind of that post CFP. I want to go deeper. I'm trying to figure out what's next after I get my CFP marks. That's exactly that's and, where you guys are. And you and you and I have talked about. You've even written about it before. But you know, we have a taxation concentration and a state planning concentration, and most recently, a financial life planning concentration that's been really well received and and has some amazing faculty running it. You know, I've got a couple of projects on the back burner that. I would really, if I could ever carve out the time, I'd like to move them to the front burner. And one is, you know, I want to do, I, w- I want to do a live big book of financial planning that would was aimed at the public, that would incorporate some of our insights about financial planning and, you know, the policy based approach. I'd like to write some. I, I have a book in mind that's sort of based on my original dissertation research. That I think would be t- my the working title in my head is financial planner as strategist, and it would be aimed at sharing with my fellow practitioners everything I've learned about how to think about the strategic dimension of financial planning, because that is that is our unique domain. You know, some people say, well, it's just interdisciplinary; it's just a jumble of uh, estate planning, tax planning, investment planning, and so forth. And it's like, well, no. There's a strategic dimension that knits all of that together that is our soul, that, that's, that's our unique domain. And I think that when we learn to think of ourselves as strategists and when we learn to think about financial planning as something that is a strategic activity and takes place within a strategic framework, that we approach things differently. And so I, so the, you know, financial planner or strategist is, I, I have it outlined. I have the Live Big Book of Financial Planning outlined. You know, everything I've written to date has been journal articles or chapters in books. I, I think I'd, I think I'd like to sit down and, and do a couple of more complete works. And I'm just going to need to <laughs> find some more bandwidth. So as, as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is the the word success means different things to different people. Uh, sometimes different things to us as our definition of success changes as life goes. So, you know, as someone who's certainly created what anyone would objectively call a very successful business, how do you define success for yourself at this point? So success, I, I'm going to say there's got a couple of different dimensions. I mean, obviously one dimension of success is having so many clients who so regularly say, you know, my life is better because you're in it. That's obviously what, and, you know, and, and you're right. It's a successful business. There's some financial success there. You know, Lisa and I feel very financially secure. We're able to do pretty much anything we want, which is nice. But the ultimate success, specifically on the business side, is creating something enduring that doesn't depend on me. 
you know, I will say, I will, I'll say briefly, I was on a panel back in 2000 and I had, I think Peggy Rulin was on my right and Tim Coaches was on my left. And at some point, and I was considered the dinosaur, you know, I was like the solo practitioner. I don't know why that's dinosaur, but that's the way they, that's the way that, what they called me. And, but I was very focused on this solo practitioner mindset at the time. And at some point, you know, Tim made this grandiloquent statement to the effect that we're building a firm that will serve our clients under the seventh generation. And I turned to him and I said, Tim, the seventh, seventh generation doesn't give a damn about you. And he said, he immediately said, yes, but our current clients do care about that. And I've come to see the wisdom of it. And, you know, I, I set about in the 90s to see how big I could build a firm sort of all by myself with a lot of technology and systems. And the project since we formed Yeski Bowie has been quite different. And it's been how to build a firm, how to build a team, how to build something enduring that could continue and carry on the values that we've that we've built into it without us. You know, Elise and I talk about one of our one of our filters when we started this firm was that we ultimately wanted to be dispensable. You know, a lot of times people want to be indispensable, and that's the word that always comes to their mind. But we want to be dispensable. We want to have built something that could carry on our legacy for generations to come, and most importantly, continue to serve our clients and their children and their children's children with the same level of standards and care that we've that we've developed to date. And and Tim was right. I can't tell you how many times clients have come to me and said i'm so happy that you're that you're taking care of our adult children and that and that your firm will be able to continue to do that or or they'll come in with a grandchild and say well here's your third generation of clients you know spontaneously on their own not because i've prom- prompted them so that's that's the really big project that elise and i are are engaged in now we have three young partners you know, Yusuf Abujaderi, Lauren Morales, and Lauren Stansel joined us as partners at the beginning of last year. And there may be more partners in the future, but we 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 feel like we have a framework in place that 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 can create continuity. And I just want to continue to to deepen that framework because I'm not yet dispensable. You know, the team is great, my young partners are great. Honestly, I'm not yet dispensable. So that's the major project of my life for the next, you know, the next, I don't know how many, as many years as it takes, but I'm going to say with a lot of focus over the next three to five years, I'm going to be working on becoming dispensable. Doesn't mean I'm going to be gone. I'll probably be hanging around annoying the young people for a long time, but I want to be at that place where, you know, it, the firm doesn't require me to, to carry on the mission. Well, I, I, I wish you nothing the best in becoming more dispensable. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> And thank you, Dave, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, it's been my pleasure. It's always it's always enjoyable to hang out and talk with you, Michael. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you, Dave. Okay. Take care. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.